So now you know what the fuck NFTs actually are and their history, it's time to really delve into the period subsequent to the crypto market crash of early 2018. And if you don't know what the fuck they are, be sure to listen to the first part of this audio documentary to understand why NFTs are selling for so much money. This was a time where there was far less mainstream attention on crypto. Crazy multiples in terms of returns were few and far between. It was a period which really tested many in the crypto space. Developers, founders, protocol contributors, and NFT collectors and creators were all busy building, but in the shadows. There was a moment of peace after this crazy hysteria that led to so much speculation. It was a calm after the storm but also the calm before the storm. From an NFT standpoint specifically, this is a period where we saw the rise of the digital collector. theme that persistently came up in Act 1 was that attention and price rises brought liquidity into crypto. The Bitcoin price rise especially brought in a host of new people from all different walks of life who are now paying full attention to crypto assets. And importantly, a lot of attention attracted was from talented people, talented people who would have a huge impact on crypto for years to come. Matty DCL blogger, crypto content creator, references the 2017 bull run as the moment that captivated his attention, but says it was the interest in projects in the NFT space, like Decentraland, that convinced him to stick around. 2017, I think a lot of us got crypto on their radar because we all saw it go from nothing to hit the news. You know, Bitcoin go from a few hundred dollars to ten thousand, uh, yeah, twenty thousand dollars. And uh, that's when I started paying attention. I started investing in crypto in 2017. But yeah, off the back of that, when it all came down, um, I was looking at different projects. And one of them was Decentraland. I liked the logo, so I clicked into them. And the Discord was full of people buying and selling virtual land. And I didn't know what NFTs were. All I knew were that they were, well, in this case, you could buy virtual land on the blockchain somehow. And to me, it was a way to play around with new technology, diversify my holdings a little bit from crypto to virtual land. And that's where smart contracts and blockchain technology and NFTs all started making sense. And I realized the value of like owning an asset that a community gives value to and also being able to trade that asset with a few clicks of a button to someone across the world that you've never met before trustlessly. 
So, the price rises generated attention, but when those prices fall, those who are still captivated began digging deeper into what really interested them. For many during this bear market... Now, throughout this documentary, you're going to hear me refer to what's called a bull or a bear market. This is financial trader speak for when a market is on the rise or where most stocks are declining in value. In terms of bear and bull, they are thought to derive from the way in which each animal attacks its opponents. A bull thrusts its horns upwards into the air, while a bear will swipe down. If the trend was up, it's considered a bull market. If the trend was down, it's a bear market. For many during this bear market, where prices were low, this area of interest was NFTs. But why? Well, that has several answers. But perhaps the most obvious place to start is the fact that the rise of the digital collector was influenced by our very nature as humans. As hunter-gatherers, collecting is ingrained in our DNA. Creating vehicles for culture and media that transcend time through art is somehow to be human. In fact, from the dawn of time, man has been collecting things and creating culture through art. And this hasn't changed for over 40,000 years since humans first started creating art in the shape of cave paintings. At that point in our existence, our means of communication was limited. Grunts and drawings were all we had as humans to talk to one another. Gary Vee, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of VFriends, tells us that NFTs are just a new form of communication and social media. NFTs are becoming a way not only to socially connect, but communicate in the new digital world we're finding ourselves building. You know, to me, it's absolutely another form of quote-unquote social media. I think that what we're always living in as human beings is a desperate need to communicate, right? And right now, through my avatar, through your avatar, we're communicating and we're also communicating through the word. But the NFTs that sit in one's public wallet in a decade is going to be one of the great representations of who they actually are, right? There's the, if you think about the evolution of the human, we first learned how to communicate verbally with each other, probably through grunting and other sounds, and then language was developed. And then we started really communicating through our acquisitions of things, whether that was metals or stripes on our face with paint, and then eventually goods, right? Whether it was a car or a home or a painting or our clothes or our outfits. Uh, and so I very much see this as human evolution and owning digital assets, actually owning them and using them as a form of expression is exactly why I went all in on NFTs. It wasn't the sports cards. It wasn't the collecting comic books and cards or art. Those are all fine and great little starting points. But I actually think the NFTs that sit in our wallets as a communication portal to other human beings is the social currency, the, the expression uh, that humans require. And, and that's the biggest thing I see in a game. The notions of collecting, cultural exploration and communication are important when explaining the value of NFTs. And those ideas that make us human are not going anywhere. They're simply becoming digital. 
Gary's ideas of social communication and forms of social currency through NFTs may seem alien now, but in five to ten years will be completely normal. MetaDreamer, a DAO architect, explains, By DAO, we mean a decentralized, autonomous organization. An organization that lives entirely on a blockchain, governed by code, in this case, via what are called smart contracts, simple computer programs that execute a set of logic in a fully transparent and auditable way for all parties to see on-chain. This allows groups of people to collectively own and govern digital assets without needing to trust or even know one another, in theory with minimal direct communication. MetaDreamer, a DAO architect, explains, we've been doing this for the entirety of our existence, so it's no surprise that when it comes to bringing collecting to life digitally, it gains momentum and traction. This time, however, it's on-chain and recorded on something that will hopefully be around forever. Yeah, so I think for me, the most amazing part about NFTs is that for the first time in human history, all of sort of the cultural and artistic creation um, can happen on one medium, which is, you know, the Ethereum blockchain. Um, And sort of this one canonical ledger of record for all the things that we create. And if you just think throughout history, like the importance of art, uh, it's kind of one of the most longer longest lasting things that we have you know the from the cavemen the the one the major thing that we have from them still is like the the drawings on the wall you know um and and it's it's something really core to like who we are as humans right um throughout history even when you know we were just like trying to survive in the wild and you know uh get food for the day like we were still creating art this impulse is evidenced all around us in both the physical and the digital world For many, the beauty of creating artefacts, this time digital, that transcend generations of cultural things was enough to keep their attention firmly on the NFT space, even after a very bloody market drop at the beginning of 18. The love of art, the love of collecting, the love of NFT technology as a new media, a new medium, and what it represents. This is what convinced many to dedicate large portions of their time, capital and energy to non-fungible tokens. As Jim McNellis, founder of Nameless, explains, it wasn't really about the money. This was for the love and passion of collecting community and technology. That spark he found from buying crypto kitties, even after the 18 crash, is what convinced him to stick around and invest time in building the NFT ecosystem. Really, a lot of us ended up just buying a lot of the cats ourselves and spending a lot of money on cats rather than making money. But some people made some money. Really, the community was the golden thing in that. And what kept me around was the um, intelligence of the community and the interest in this technology. So I made a core group of friends there. And over the next few years, we bought into nearly every project that came out and explored the tokens and un- tried to understand the tokens and the limitations and the opportunities and what is possible. And then basically at a certain point realized we could make something cool in Avastars and started work on that in 2019 around like May timeframe was when I started to look for a developer and uh, some artists. 
yeah, by this time last year in January, February of 2020, we did our founder sale and then we launched our uh, scrolling experience of Avastars on 420. And uh, from there, we were able to uh, get enough revenue going to start working on some other projects like our Minting platform and invest in our community, uh, Token Smart. During this particular crypto winter, the values behind NFT projects were pure and there wasn't massive media attention. And that raw purity is what brought many very talented people in the crypto space together. Many were searching for what was the next thing after the hysteria of late 2017. With Josie, a crypto artist, CryptoKitties were her first experience of NFTs, but by no means her last. CryptoKitties helped to find crypto and encouraged her to go to community meetups. In 2018, some of these meetups brought together people who were extremely talented, but above all, shared the same values and passion when it came to NFTs. Personally, I got my first experience with NFTs was CryptoKitties um, in 2017 when when they launched. And um, I was really fortunate to have friends that were also in crypto. And when I found crypto, I started going to meetups and in Chicago, and we just all connected and met with each other. Um, So I actually lived in a house with five roommates and three out of the five of us um, were either working in crypto or trading or whatever it was. So when we found CryptoKitties, we actually like over dinner and stuff were trading cats with each other, sending cats to each other's wallets to breed and then send back. So it was a really fun experience for me. And then really the next moment that sort of tied all this together and brought me back to NFTs was meeting some really important people in in the space and within the virtual reality um, communities as well that sort of opened my eyes to how much bigger NFTs could be than CryptoKitties. But I do give CryptoKitties so much respect for bringing NFTs to so many people. This aspect of collectability and community is a product of nostalgia. We associate collecting with our childhood. We're nostalgic for a resurgence in old models to tangibly recreate them in a digital fashion. What was once marbles and top trumps are now brought to you digitally as NFTs. This is networked nostalgia. The memories you hold so dear to you from your childhood and adolescence are powerful and stay with you forever. They're so powerful that they've manifested themselves online. The NFT space became a digital playground where adults were taking themselves back in time. Money and returns were more infrequent, but the love for this playground remained. Jim McNellis says that NFTs are basically everything to him due to his fond memories of collecting baseball cards as well as being a heavy gamer. NFTs are basically everything to me. You know, growing up, uh, I've always been a collector and a gamer as that that space has evolved um, from cardboard baseball cards to being able to collect things inside of games. Um, those two worlds kind of married for me. And I started collecting like skins and things like that. I play a game called Dota 2 for years and years and years and have spent thousands of dollars on those skins. And always wondered like, how could I get something out of the experience further than just selling on a marketplace and buying more skins. And I also collected a lot of Legos and coins and baseball cards and stuff like that. 
And so just having the opportunity to collect these things on a blockchain and be able to trade them and gain value from them that way outside of the ecosystems where they were created initially, to me, is just like a groundbreaking moment in the history of digital items. What is clear is that people were kept interested in the space due to a few common themes. Collectability, community, childhood nostalgia, and meeting like-minded, talented people. The collectability aspect wasn't immediately obvious to everyone. Some in the space were attracted by the monetary side of crypto and the potential to make profits on NFTs. Nate Hart, an early NFT collector and trader, tells us about how he was engrossed by the huge figures he saw in CryptoKitty land. I got into CryptoKitties because I saw news, the headlines uh, revolving around them. I saw people talking about $100,000 cat sales. And I, I just thought this is fucking insane. Like, I, I, I can't imagine you know, somebody spending that kind of money or, or even better making that kind of money on something so dumb. And, you know, if I'm being totally honest, even in like the middle of 2018, I didn't really get the longer term or collectible angle of this whole thing. Like I, I was, a I, even with like breeding, let's say fancies and crypto kitties, I would make these efficient farms and I would be wanting to sell them as fast as I could to whoever was buying them. I didn't really know why somebody bought something as a collectible as an NFT. I really just whiffed on that and I didn't really see it um, until this guy, uh, Go West, who, who I'm good friends with now. And I've probably talked to probably almost every day for the last you know few years. And he, he came into the space, uh, into the NFT space, he's been in the crypto world for forever, but and he started dropping like 10 Ether and 20 Ether on these cats, which was a shitload of money to really anybody in the crypto kitty space at this time. Because after the bubble burst in you know, January 2018, nobody was spending. And, and like now it's kind of silly in, this, in the context of what NFTs will sell for now. But then, you know, September 2018, crypto is dead. NFTs are deader. This insane guy comes in and starts spending what seemed like a shitload of money in a space where nobody else has been. And it, that really was where it switched for me. And I realized that there's, Oh shit, you can, there's this collectible angle here where you, you can take the, you can play the long game here and, you know, people are going to see how significant this is and how world changing this technology is going to be. So, yeah, I mean, that, that was really where my journey into from like just trying to make some money to like collecting began is, is, and it was still, you know, in the crypto kitties world, um, autoglyphs launched, I believe it was like April, 20,000, uh, 2019. I bought, you know, a bunch of those at the beginning and, and I started like understanding kind of the longer term play here. I, I've, I've always kind of inherently been, you know, a flipper and a profiteer. And I like, I just like that game. From trying to make money flipping NFTs to being totally captivated by them, many may have been attracted to this nascent thing initially by the potential of making money, but stuck around due to their love of collecting. As we discussed earlier, it's something innate to humans. 
Even if it didn't seem obvious at first, it's almost as if that subconscious urge to collect won many people over early in the NFT space. No matter how people had fallen in love with NFTs, one thing was certain, a tribe had been formed. Collecting became being part of this borderless community and what you collected displayed status within it. This notion of collecting and yearning to be part of a community is primal but powerful, to the point it has rapidly accelerated this nascent technology form into becoming the future of media. Cameron Bale, co-founder and producer of NFT NYC, one of the first NFT conferences, tells us that the social alliance created by non-fungible tokens via digital means is valuable beyond the medium itself. NFTs are really like a, a like a tribe, I think, or they create a tribe where we create recognition among our peers by sort of being part of this this movement or this community. You know, like if I'm interested in a particular game and I have the NFTs from that game, other people that have similar NFTs, they can relate to me and it creates sort of this social alliance between us. I, I really sort of view NFTs as as a medium. And I sort of make this comparison when I when I've given talks about, you know, what is an NFT or NFT 101, the way that I describe it is as a medium where I sort of compare it to a, a CD-ROM and a CD-ROM, it, it's sort of, it's this vehicle or a medium for carrying something and it doesn't necessarily have any value unless it has something interesting on it. You know, like using the CD-ROM analogy, you, you don't care about a blank CD, but you do care about it if it has a Rolling Stones album on it or if it has your favorite video game on it or if it has, you know, photos from a family trip to Disneyland on it. Um, so I sort of look at NFTs like that, like they're a vehicle for carrying value or store of value. Um, and I think that we're starting to see, you know, more and more really interesting applications as to how people are using this to uh, distribute different types of value among their communities. And, you know, we're seeing lots of different examples of how that is creating these tribes or communities in different social um, spheres. As Marshall McLuhan once said of TV, the medium is the message. It's not what the content of an NFT is, it's how the medium itself is used and represented. It's easy to buy, sell, trade and collect where markets are rising, but where markets are down and negativity is everywhere, mentally it's a lot more difficult. That's why some of these themes are really important, because NFTs and crypto represent far more than just technology or even money, these themes and feelings impacted many thousands of people to the extent that they still wanted to stay, collect, build and grow even during a bear market. But who were the people collecting and what kept them going? Silly Tuna, now one of the largest NFT collectors in the world, but also a game developer by background, tells us that subsequent to CryptoKitties, next generation blockchain native games were being built and crypto art was being created and collected. I think there were, there were quite a lot of artists. Uh, so I think people like XCopy and Josie, um, they, they, they just kept releasing their artworks, kept going. There were game projects from companies like Blockade, Axie Infinity, which is obviously going on and done extremely well. Both of those are very NFT based. But I think, I mean, the one that stands out for me is Axie Infinity. They have progressed from 
starting off as a, fair, a simple game that came out of the CryptoKitties audience, and they wanted to do things differently. And I think they've been very, very creative at their use of NFTs. So they always had this plan to have land, but they've got a game designed around it. They have breeding aspects that came from CryptoKitties. They actually have a game planned around that. It's not just breeding. There is a, there is a combat game. They have nurtured a community around their NFTs. Their community are playful with the NFTs and that they create other games for those. So NFTs can be used across in, in multiple ways, not just by the original developer. And the Axie developers, they were very publicly open to third-party projects from their fans and community using their NFTs. I think they were the first ones to nurture a proper audience around NFTs. And they did it during that time of bust. They have iterated the NFT in, the, in games better than anyone else. And so as a game developer myself, they're the ones I looked to as like they, they, they really, really changed the way we do things. To try and emphasize the difficulty of building during this period, it's best to look at one thing, capital. ICOs created a culture of raising millions of dollars using tokens, which was something that was just far more infrequent in 2018 and 19. The community, passion, talents and ideas were there, and perhaps even more so. But without funding, it's very difficult to start anything. Celie Tuna again tells us that founders who weren't able to get backing from some of the big plays in the space were often left with self-funded projects, of which many naturally failed, leaving them with no crypto at all. Um, there was well, angels like me. Uh, we backed those projects. Uh, there were a few firms of the, you know, the likes of um, Consensus. They took a long time evaluating projects, but they did invest in, in, in you know, I can't say whether they invested in Axie, but they did invest in several different projects in the space. But it was very hard going for people. A lot of people actually spend all their own money. And I know several people who ended up without any crypto because they spent it on their own projects. I mean, we certainly spent a lot on our one. It was the only way to get them done. And some projects died in that time and some projects didn't. This was a far more difficult environment to build in. And creating any sort of product, game, or art or collectible was the first piece of that puzzle. You had to gain traction in the form of users or buyers. A lot of this was on the project owners themselves. Sean Gardner, CEO of Blockchain Music, tells us of his struggles during 2018 and 19. People were far more closed-minded and less willing to take a risk on something that was built on a blockchain. He describes the insanity of emails he sent out in 2018 only now being responded to in 2021. You know, throughout 2018 and, and 2019, it was a difficult task for us just to get people to be open-minded enough to set up a crypto wallet in order to earn revenue for their music in a new way and think about um, blockchain in general. NFTs were almost that kind of even nerdier little brother that for so long just seemed like something that the everyday person would, would never wrap their head around. Since then, it's been a process of literally people kind of replying to emails from us, reaching out you know, cold about things relating to blockchain and music. Literally people replying to emails that were sent in 2018, 2019, saying, hey, I can't believe I missed this. Glad you got in touch. Really want to chat about NFTs. Um, so it, it's kind of gone from us, us just kind of reaching out to people in the music industry to tell them all about what's going on and to just people 
absolutely clambering to to get involved in this space and the sense of urgency around it has been really really irrational but and definitely kind of quite FOMO driven in terms of the big dollar signs that people have seen and you know most artists that we're chatting to have a genuine desire to explore the creativity and use NFTs as a um, long-term strategy. Many outsiders will claim that those who were early in the previous cycle were just lucky, but really luck has very little to do with it. There was a lot of pain, patience, perseverance and determination to ensure that amazing amounts of value were built and created in the NFT space that we enjoy today. It's incredible to think it's only now that people are truly giving NFTs and their innovators the attention and respect they deserve. We've talked about CryptoKitties and their role throughout this period. We've talked about NFT art at surface level, which we're going to delve into much deeply later. And we briefly touched on other use cases such as gaming and music. We've discussed the community and primal joy of collecting during this period. But one project in particular that also gained a lot of traction after 2017 was Decentraland. One of the first blockchain-based virtual worlds, alongside CryptoVoxels, native to the NFT space. This is Decentraland, a virtual world that's owned by its users. And people are paying thousands of dollars in cryptocurrency for the chance to create a new virtual life online and maybe even make a profit. I'm not selling it until it's worth at least 10 million. They're the riskiest investments in the whole world. So will it be a virtual paradise or a crypto property bubble? Decentraland is a shared virtual world running on the Ethereum blockchain that incentivizes a global network of users to populate it with content and bring it to life. But one, importantly, built on NFTs. Decentraland users can buy and sell digital real estate while exploring, interacting and playing games within this virtual world. Over time, the platform has evolved to implement interactive apps, in-world payments and peer-to-peer communication for its users. It started off in a relatively centralised way where a handful of developers created the world. There was a successful ICO raise in 2017 and eventually the developers handed over that world to its users, making it fully decentralised. Back in 2017, it required a lot of vision to see the potential of Decentraland. And there was a lot of pushback. In the same way, people were sceptical about splurging money on digital cats and digital art, digital land was scrutinised just as much, especially considering how many ICO projects failed during this period after raising absurd amounts of money, leaving many burnt. As Eri Milich, one of the founding team in Decentraland, puts it, the core ethos around this decentralised world concept was literal to the name. It was imperative that the world built did not have one single company behind it, running it much like the dystopic metaverse imagined in science fiction like Ready Player One and its oasis. And they were uncompromising in this mission. When it comes to the metaverse, uh, I mean, my, my friends who had the initial idea for, for the central and 
uh, because the, the central end came as the as started as, the, as a weekend project from a group of hacker friends, and they were reading all sorts of science fiction novels. And when they tried to see like how was it technically possible to create a metaverse such as the one that uh, Neil Stevenson was describing in Snow Crash, they thought about how can this be created in such a way that it's not all controlled by a single company. And blockchain, well, it's a, a great way to bring uh, such a platform to life. Uh, so I would say that Decentraland sort of condenses a lot of the ideals of decentralization and maybe like a lot of the properties that make uh, NFTs different and valuable. Decentraland uh, was conceived really as a fully decentralized platform, an entire virtual world that could exist and be operated without a central company. And that's what's happening actually today after several years in the making uh, over a year ago, we launched Decentraland and we turned off our servers I mean, the servers of the initial development company and the central land and the virtual land are still full of content and the content is being served by a distributed network of uh, nodes that are serving the content and the communications between the users are still taking place and there are no like central servers in the middle. It's all peer-to-peer. So yeah, the central and uh, sort of try to deliver on a lot of the promises for for blockchain and for NFTs. So I think uh, that's why it's such a foundational project. So why was Decentraland so important? What makes this virtual world such a symbolic cog to the NFT ecosystem and the future metaverse? With NFTs, there's this notion of transferability, of interoperability between worlds, which is alien to how we've grown up so far with digital items. If you own an object, avatar, or a piece of land in an online game, not only do you not really own it, but you can't transfer it. This is one of the ideas that's made NFTs such a success. The fact that you can buy a piece of crypto art on one platform and showcase it in another, like Decentraland, on your land, in your virtual gallery, without anyone's permission. Again, this might sound and feel alien, because we've been conditioned to living in a digital world owned and controlled by platforms. Why did Decentraland captivate so many during this period? The collaboration and the incentives these protocols and in-game economies had built were a primary driver, but the community-driven growth was what were many over. Matty DCL Blogger tells us about his experience with Decentraland. He was captivated, even though this world was empty and primitive at the time. In his words, there really wasn't much to do, but the community still loved buying and selling this land and being part of a potentially world-defining project. Yeah, I mean, like when I got involved, there was really not much to do. It was 2018 January was when they had just finished their, what they call the Terraform event, which was their big land sale. Um, People had two weeks to bid on any land that they wanted. And so they had just finished that and, and, and everyone had just gotten their pieces of land as NFTs. And then we were all waiting for little features to come online. There wasn't even an online marketplace where we could even trade anything. Um, to trade assets, you'd have to do it all manually, right? You'd have to broker a deal on Discord. 
then you'd have to send them your money and trust them enough that they would send that land back to you. So definitely high risk. But that's how it all started. It started with all of us experimenting and and the ecosystem building by itself. And for the first one or two years, there was not much to do but really wait on the team to deliver. But there was no real world to discover and uh, explore. So that started in, that happened in Feb 2020. And, um, you know, since then, a lot of the community that were just there flipping lands, some of them went away, some of them stayed. Um, Some of them who were interested in actually building the world, like myself, and experimenting with what else that can be done with this technology stayed. And um, we continued to grow um, and experiment. And I remember the early days of 2020 when we were it was an open world and it was an empty world. Uh, predominantly, it had some stuff you could go and explore, but interactively, there was not much to do. Nothing being built doesn't sound great, but some people were inspired to see the emptiness of this open world because in it, they saw an opportunity to make a huge impact before anyone else, almost as pioneers. Daniel, otherwise known as Toxam, an avatar creator in the metaverse, says he wasn't scared of the barren landscape, which was Decentraland at the time. For creators and explorers like him, and those that wanted to be at the forefront of something, it had the opposite effect. I actually found him by accident. Uh, I was in my co-working space and saw this guy speaking Spanish very bad came to him, take a coffee with him, and he explained me how he was decentralizing his wine yard and how he bought a crypto kitty and and I and I asked him like what the fuck was that, right? And he introduced me into the central land and he introduced me in, into all this world in just in, in just a coffee. I, I didn't really listen to him too much, but later on I started to dig into this and I started to to explore the whole scene and and, and Decentraland was kind of the breaking point for this, right? Uh, There was nothing built. It was very exciting because there was nothing built and people was already trading land and trading things. I joined the Decentraland Discord and I started to speak with people and I found this guy called Jin and he took me, took my hands Draw me through the metaverse. We went to different layers like Janus VR. We went to crypto voxels actually, and it was empty. And I thought like, wow, this is awesome. I, I'm here before everybody else. Uh, I can actually make an impact. I can actually come here and start building. And the people who will come after me will see those buildings already been done. And you know, when you go somewhere uh, to visit, I don't know, Egypt, and you see the pyramids and you say, wow, these guys built it before us, how they did, right? So I, I wanted to the same the same feeling, to be the first one to be in the metaverse and build as much as possible and make an impact because it was really exciting to see everything empty. The feeling of wanting to leave a legacy through building things on Decentraland is what convinced so many to start dedicating serious time, energy and money on the platform. Building the digital pyramids of Egypt in the metaverse. That's the type of vision that was needed to truly understand what Decentraland was all about and as a result, the future potential of the metaverse as a whole. CryptoKitties and Decentraland in their own way encouraged people to spend more time in NFTs, 
despite the bear market. As we've touched on frequently throughout this documentary, digital art was a simple and perhaps obvious application of NFTs that would drive a lot of attention. As with many new technologies, sometimes simplicity wins. But for many, at least at first, CryptoKitties and Decentraland went over people's heads almost entirely. Crypto art or NFT art was a simple enough concept. It's art, but it's digital and it's scarce. And it's provably owned by nobody else but you. The story of the rise of the digital collector can't be told without really delving into why crypto art first became popular. artists, this was a realm of new possibilities. There were so many reasons why NFTs would promise to become the go-to medium for many new and existing digital artists, even as big as people, to better monetize their work and communities. It was a way to have true control of your work, the relationship with your collectors, and as a byproduct, your career as an artist. NFTs gave artists the financial tooling to directly monetize their work beyond the gallery or even a platform, to establish a direct-to-creator relationship. And if the artist had some technical competency as a coder and built their own smart contracts to mint these works, NFTs became a way to directly control the digital relationship with collectors even after they'd sold the work, in theory, forever. Acting as a new distribution channel and customer relationship management tool where they could continue to reward supporters with value over time and find new ways to delight. Suddenly, there was so much you could do that just wasn't possible before. Silly Tuna broke down why exactly NFTs were becoming so important to artists and why they gained so much traction during 2018 to 19, despite or irrespective to what was going on in wider crypto. I mean, it sounds terrible to some people, but you can put a value on digital media that you simply couldn't do before. Although it seems a very trite thing to do, a very trite thing to say, the fact that you can issue a limited edition item that's digital and people can show, can prove that they own it, you've got the provenance aspects. That could never be done before, not in a, not in a, true, a truly valuable way. It was always very, very limited, very platform restricted. But now, if you think about it, and this is why it's going to revolutionize art generally, uh, as well as many other aspects. If you wanted to do anything art-wise previously, let alone digital, you'd go into a gallery physically. Uh, you'd see some very expensive artwork. You're probably drinking a glass of wine. And they're going to, that's the only way they can get you in there to really buy anything. And so it's quite, art was quite inaccessible in many cases, although I know there are really good products to make it accessible. You had to be physically located in the gallery. And galleries are not something many people visit. And if you want to sell that artwork, it's really tremendously difficult. Not just the physical location, but like, how do people know it's real? I mean, I'm, I haven't got a clue. I've just sold and had a problem selling a collectible football shirt physically, which got destroyed by the packaging company. And I'm still fighting to get that, that money back. And in the digital world, certainly if you've seen the digital, digital artworks, there is an international audience of all ages, but particularly youngsters, we can sell fr without friction. We can sell to anyone. We can sell instantly. We've got provenance. It's an international market. 
it's a complete, complete game changer. It was indeed a complete game changer. And the value of these digital pieces of art went beyond the visual content. It was what they represented, remembering the medium is the message. This layered, unique way of creating art on a digital canvas was what encouraged so many artists to turn their hand to the digital and away from the physical. As Nahiko Mikasa, a hacker and artist, puts it, The point is, the artwork is not the image, it is what's behind it. One of the great things about the digital art community is not just the exciting, new and innovative ways that they're using NFTs to push creative boundaries, but it's also the togetherness of the community itself. Many artists are also collectors, reinvesting their profits from selling NFTs during this period to help other emerging artists in the space. Artists helping perpetuate this new way of generating art by keeping a lot of the money in the space. As Iran, creator of Punk Bodies puts it, shared value was vital. I love how a lot of artists in the communities are uh, making more money faster than they have for a while. Um, that's a beautiful thing. And all of that value is being shared. You know, people who make money on per sales of their NFT art are also buying other smaller artists' NFT arts, and it's creating this beautiful ecosystem. The values of artists and subsequently of the artwork was really important during this period. Wellshark talks about the community being paramount to the success of NFTs. The values we've discussed since the start of this episode have been vital to the success of all NFT projects. But with artists, there seems to be extra impetus to create more shared value. Artists have been conditioned to not receiving the full financial value of their art because of the business models of galleries and the notion of perpetual royalties were few and far between, especially for smaller artists and creators. The balance had to be flipped hard into the creator's favour. And during the post-ICO boom of 2017, that's exactly what began happening. As Wellsharp puts it, this became baked into the very DNA of the NFT industry. In the non-fungible token industry, community has been paramount to its success. I've been in a professional capacity for over 18 years now, and never have I seen an industry with such a sharing, collaborative, and helpful community baked into the DNA. I think we're extremely lucky that the major part and a lot of the major growth that has been derived from NFTs has actually been from the artistic side. All of the digital artists throughout the world, they really imparted a lot of that you know, selfless DNA into the community that has slowly increased and even become more intense as the community has grown larger. Similarly talking, we as the whale community, uh, what I wanted to do was ensure that we were creating uh, a community that embodied all of those values that had made and continues to make NFT such a fun place to be. The community defines the way that the artists, the collectors, as well as the investors interact with one another. So while there are economic interests between all three parties, everyone is very aligned towards that same goal, which is pushing non-fungible technology towards the mainstream. 
Integral to these communities were platforms where NFTs are minted, created, and sold. The NFT space today simply would not be what it is hadn't these platforms onboarded millions of new buyers into the space and made it easier for the existing crypto community to discover and buy new artists. The balance of power had to be shifted into the favor of the creator, and NFT marketplaces would be the conduit, but not, as we'll discover later, without their controversy. Platforms such as OpenSea, Nifty Gateway, Super Rare, and Rarible saw huge increases in volume throughout 2019 and what could only be described as exponential hypergrowth at the turn of 2021. Duncan Kotfoster, co-founder of Nifty Gateway, explained just how insane the rise in volumes got at the beginning of 2020. In March of 2020, we had $30,000 worth of volume. In November of 2020, we had a million dollars worth of volume. And we were thrilled with that. We were sitting there thinking, okay, uh, we've grown you know, 20x in this five, six month period. That's like fantastic growth. Uh, but we didn't think it was going to continue. So we, we went from a million dollars in November of 2020. And then in March of 2021, we had $140 million worth of volume. Yeah, in, in November, we were, we were amazed. And we, we looked at the 20x growth we had just had, and it sort of blew our minds. Little did we know that you know, in the next six month period, we're going to see 140x growth. And honestly, I think, you know, we and a lot of other people in the space, we're really just like not ready for the level of interest that came. And during the meteoric rise of NFTs in 2021, it wasn't just the native marketplaces and platforms that were getting involved. It was the names we usually associate with fine art in a physical sense, like Sotheby's and Christie's, who began turning their attention to this fascinating way to sell art and engage with entirely new audiences. When talking to Max Moore, the leader and pioneer of NFT auctions at Sotheby's, it was clear from their very first auction this represented a paradigm shift for the auction house and its rich history. And the diversity of buyers was perhaps most important to them. 90% who participated in the first NFT drop were people who had never bought anything at Sotheby's before. It was really important to choose an artist that was really pushing the boundaries of what an NFT, you know, the, the, the potential of NFTs. I really wanted to explore that. And that sale was, looking back, rather ambitious for a first sale for Sotheby's. Um, we had to partner with Nifty Gateway to, to host the auction because we weren't set up um, ourselves to host some of the uh, mechanisms of that sale. And, you know, looking back, there may have been one or two components that were superfluous to the overall goal, but I think it was an incredible success that we had over 3,000 unique buyers and about 90% of them were new to Sotheby's. And that was really what was exciting to see and allowed us to build, you know, into natively digital, into the World Wide Web and, um, you know, and several other exciting projects. However, it wasn't all rainbows and butterflies. As these platforms became more popular, there was a period when they tried to take larger portions of the profits from creators. 
The tension we saw here shows that platforms, when centralized with shareholders, will always be tempted to get greedy. Only recently, Binance faced significant backlash over low-balling artists with just 1% of royalties on their new NFT platform. But increasingly, many NFT platforms such as SuperRare are progressively decentralizing their governance to the community through tokenization, which may help ease these tensions and help platforms, creators and collectors find consensus more easily. On the fight for 10% royalties, Skinny, an early adopter of crypto art, told us to make crypto art worthwhile and create a better future for artists, royalties were imperative. I think he was uh, Matt Kane, Bart Johnson, and uh, was Lawrence Lee. Basically, we had this discussion while well, Ed Sparrow as well. And I'm, I'm going to forget tons of names, and I'm, I'm sorry in advance for, uh, for that. but. I think it was Bart Johnson and, um, and Lawrence Lee. Lawrence Lee is, uh, I think he's seven, in his seventies now. We had this discussion about, uh, how he, uh, he had to compete with his younger self because, yeah, people were reselling his art and he, well, he never touched any royalties from that. So basically he has to create art that is better than the art he used to create in his prime to be able to make a living. And he, he really was struggling. I think it started from that. I'm not 100% sure. But then we all ganged up. Basically, there's a group of all the most uh, influential crypto artists at the time, led by basically McCain, Sparrow, Bart Jensen, and Lawrence Lee were really at the, the core of this. And we decided that, uh, well, I'm just going back a little bit. At the point, the only platform that had royalties was uh, super rare. And they were... I think at 2.5% and none of the other platform had them. We came to the conclusion that if we wanted to make crypto art worthwhile and if we wanted to create a better future for artists, that we needed to have royalties so we could, you know, one day retire. So we all banded together to, uh, to push this uh, royalty system on, on the platform. And we came up with a, well, a declaration, um, a manifesto in a way, like a crypto art manifesto explaining uh, how artists, collectors and platform could band together to make uh, a better future for artists and how it was going to benefit everybody. Artists, because we wouldn't have to worry about, you know, have, finding a way to feed our family in the future. Collectors, because if artists have a safe future, they're going to, be more prone to create and be less stressed and create better. And well, platform, because again, man, it's just better uh, quality art for them if you let the artist uh, produce in peace. We got very lucky because we, we sent this proposal to, to the platform. That was step one, basically, just, just proposing them to find, uh, to implement the royalties. And then we're all ready to uh, boycott the platform if needed. And we're also expecting to maybe get uh, booted by the platform. And luckily for us, like the platform, I think Super Rare was the first one uh, to adopt those royalties. And then all the other platform, uh, I think Non Origin aligned on them right away, Microspace as well. And it just uh, spread like this. 
This vibrant ecosystem with inherent values was reminiscent of the punk movement in music and popular culture during the 1970s. There was a real and authentic anarchic ethos to it. The values, community and message behind the medium was much more important than the music itself. Many in the NFT space see crypto and non-fungibles as a new renaissance of punk ethos, attitude and culture, but this time in a purely digital way. Angie Taylor, a crypto artist, told us that NFTs and crypto art especially reminded her of the punk movement she participated in in the 70s. Yeah, well, I was part of the punk movement in the 1970s. I'm that old. One of the things that really did appeal to me about crypto art was it completely reminded me of punk. The DIY attitudes, the um, anyone can do it. You know, you didn't need expensive equipment or to be part of an exclusive network to get involved. You just jumped in and started making art and people seemed to embrace it. And that really reminded me of back in the 70s where you could just go and buy a cheap guitar from Woolworths and start playing. And suddenly people were hiring bands that didn't have a record deal to play in concert halls and people were making their own fanzines. And it was a very, very similar feeling to the feeling now Again, this sense of nostalgia creeps into NFTs. The medium of this art is different, but many of the values overlap. One thing that did become popular during the bear market was trash art. Trash art is a term first coined by the artist Space Divers, but quickly became a meme in the early crypto art scene. At first, it was a joke for a typically lazy gif and to take a picture of something people wouldn't consider as art and then animate it in a basic app such as Photomosh, which would allow artists to remix each other's work in a couple of clicks. However, trash art really became a movement in response to Rob Ness being deplatformed by SuperRare, a leading NFT art platform at the time, for copyright infringement of a repurposed image of a bin taken from stock footage of Home Depot, the 64-gallon totter. This was possibly a form of NFT art most linked to the punk movement and ethos. It was quick, messy, and the don't-give-a-shit attitude was the selling point. An almost digital manifestation of a rebellion against traditional systems in the art world where centralised parties had controlled the money and means of distribution and discoverability. Rob Ness tells us, that the trash art movement that he founded and was a big part in progressing equates to picking up a guitar and making a song in five minutes. So it's weird that the, the word is so strong, but you know, throughout the ages, like even in music, like jazz was punk. In regards to this piece, I almost feel like it's become type of like a digital folk art in itself. There's no, um, there's no elitist attitude to make trash art if you want to make a really quick slammed piece you know i was joking that you know if you don't make a trash gif in under five minutes it's not a real trash gif you know so i i equate that equate that to like punk rock where you know you can grab a guitar and learn three chords and within five minutes you can slam up a master song together and really just put out an expression true expression so um a lot of those uh, past uh movements i feel i feel it's the same you know i, I really do 
Although there were some of the same underlying values of rebelling against the art establishment in the physical world, for many crypto artists, they felt trash art held back NFTs and the digital art it represented. But cultural movements aren't always clean or pure, and they almost always upset establishment figures. In the 70s, we had punk. In the 90s, we had hip-hop, both of which were maligned by society and media at the time for rebelling against norms. Punk was sexualized, drug fueled and hip-hop was supposedly inciting violence. Even fast-forward to the noughties, the internet started to rebel through file-sharing with BitTorrent and LimeWire. The common denominator is they're all linked to an art form or media. Just because they didn't fit the ideals and existing business models of the establishment doesn't mean they weren't worthy of value. Jay DeLay, a collector and creator, told us about the beauty he saw in so-called low-quality art. Again, here, there was much more that met the eye. I don't know if it was collectors trying to protect the space because it was such a new space. There was a lot of people talking about, you know, well, what if a bunch of artists come in here and just start making a bunch of low-quality crypto art? Like, it could potentially ruin everybody's investments. But to me, that was beautiful. Like, a bunch of people could come in and it didn't have to live up to anybody's expectations. People could create what they wanted, whether it was a toter or a trash can or just anything, and didn't have to appeal to any gallery standard or any collector's standard. So I thought there was like this beautiful kind of punk rock aesthetic and uh, philosophy behind the movement. But will this rebellious, punk-type ethos stick around as NFTs really go mainstream? Have the likes of Christie's and Sotheby's getting involved detracted from this punk, upstart feeling when it comes to NFTs? We've now gone through the history of NFTs, but also delved deep into why they became more important after the crypto bubble of 2017. We've told the story of the rise of the digital collector, But what is beyond the horizon? What is happening now that is going to transform the way we interact digitally for years to come? How will NFTs change the world forever in the future? Join us for the third part of the audio documentary where we dissect the future of NFTs. This podcast was brought to you by NFTs.WhatTheFuck, a digital magazine and media platform dedicated to documenting the past, present and future of NFTs through its important moments. This episode of The History and Future of NFTs, an audio documentary, was narrated by me, Jamie Burke. The podcast was written, produced and edited by Pet Berisha, this episode of the podcast featured Matty DCL Blogger, Gary V, MetaDreamer, Jim McNellis, Josie, Nate Hart, Cameron Bale, Silly Tuna, Sean Gardner, Ari Melich, Toxam, 
Nahiko Mikasa, Iran, Whale Shark, Duncan Cockfoster, Max Moore, Angie Taylor, Rob Ness, Jay DeLay, and Skeenie.